Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Bazira Khan and Amy Franceschini of Future Farmers. Khan and Future Farmers are among the artists included in Climate Changing on Artists, Institutions, and the Social Environment at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, through May 9th. The exhibition looks at how artists engage with social issues and how they may shape institutions at a time when both racism and a global pandemic have caused many institutions to reconsider their construction and practices. Climate Changing was curated by Lucy I. Zimmerman. It features nine artworks commissioned by the Wexner, including work Torquase Dyson discussed on the program last September. We'll have a link to that show at manpodcast.com. Bazira Khan addresses colonial histories, exile, place and displacement, and belonging within the context of capitalism and its impacts. Their work takes many forms, including performance, sculpture, and soon a TV pilot produced during a recent residency at The Kitchen in New York City. Later this year, Khan will have their first solo museum show at the Brooklyn Museum. I'll introduce Amy Franceschini of Future Farmers when we get to the second segment of the show. But for now, Bazira Khan, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Hockney Van Gogh, The Joy of Nature, showcasing the work of David Hockney and Vincent Van Gogh side-by-side for the first time in an American museum and only in Houston. Discover the expansive landscape paintings and vivid drawings of two renowned artists. For details on virtual lectures, curated shopping, and tickets, go to mfah.org slash Hockney Van Gogh. Hi, everyone. I want to tell you about a free new app called Bloomberg Connects. It lets you access museums, galleries, and cultural spaces around the world anytime, anywhere. The app doesn't address just a single institution or one exhibition, but instead takes a portfolio approach by offering access to many different cultural institutions through a single download. On Bloomberg Connects, you can discover new cultural offerings, including some with which you might not be as familiar creating exciting opportunities for you to find new ideas that address your interests across geographically disparate institutions. Bloomberg Connects currently has guides available for many institutions in New York and London, including the Central Park Conservancy. Use the Bloomberg Connects app to learn about Seneca Village, an area near the park's West 85th Street entrance. During the first half of the 19th century, Seneca Village was a predominantly African-American community that was eliminated when New York City used its eminent domain powers to include the area within Central Park. Learn about what scholars and archaeologists have been finding in and about the area on Bloomberg Connects. Bloomberg Connects was created by Bloomberg Philanthropies to make arts and culture accessible to more people around the world. Download Bloomberg Connects today to access digital guides, to hear from artists, curators, and experts, and to get the stories behind exhibitions. You can download Bloomberg Connects on the Apple app and Google Play stores and from app.bloombergconnects.org slash modernartnotes. Explore an ancient trading center in Return to Palmyra, a new online exhibition from Getty. Discover rare photos and etchings of the city, including famous ruins that no longer exist, and learn how Palmyra has transformed over time. Read an interview with Palmyra's former director of antiquities and museums, Walid Khaled al-Sad, who grew up in this famous Syrian desert oasis where he can trace his lineage back five generations. Dive into Palmyra's history and culture from the prehistoric to modern period with art historian Joan Aruz. Return to Palmyra is a dual-language exhibition presented in both English and Arabic. Learn more and start exploring at getty.edu slash palmyra. And we're back. Basira Khan, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. 
What about columns of the sort used in, in building and, and used across time and geographies in building first caught your attention? Well, I, I can remember when I was studying art history in these large seminar classrooms in undergraduate school, and I would look at the different kinds of columns, and then there was this kind of cognition when I would walk around that kind of stuck with me no matter where I went. In fact, no matter where I went in the world. So the Corinthian column is a device to kind of flex, in a way, one's power. I see it in churches. I see it adorned in front of schools. I see them specifically in the Wall Street area. I see them adorning banks um, and municipal city hall buildings. So as I was preparing for Snakeskin, which was my first solo show at Simone Sabal in 2019, I and I do this often, I was thinking about three or four things at the same time. So I was thinking about this memory and then the cognition of power on buildings to signify, to, to, to flex power, right? And then I was thinking about this thing that happens to me when I walk into a mosque. So there are these vast open spaces when you walk into a mosque because there are a lot of people who want to pray. And so each person, in a way, is taking up about 38 by 40 inches. And I say that specific number because in my practice, I have this artwork called psychedelic prayer rugs. I've, I've been observing the kind of ready-made that a prayer rug is that's been in my life forever. And I took it and kind of manipulated the imagery into my own lived experience. And so <laughs> I was kind of thinking about that work I've done and then thinking about why is it that every time I walk into a mosque and there's pillars that are holding up, there's columns that are holding up the ceiling because these are vast open spaces indoors. So I know that like every, I don't know, 10 feet, you'll have a column because that's what the building requires in order for the ceiling to, to stay above your head. And the funny thing that happens is these aunties and uncles decide when they're putting down the carpet, the religious carpeting in these vast spaces, someone is like, you know what, let's wrap the column too. And so I was also thinking about this kind of comedic gesture for interior decorating by our aunts and uncles who are trying to manifest these vast spaces in mosques to look like outdoor landscape. They want the columns to disappear. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I was asked to do a postcard at the Studio Museum right before this project for Snakeskin, and I you know, each one of us, there's a lot of conversation right now since the uprising and since the pandemic about privilege and empathy. And so one thing in, in my purview of privileges is that I'm Muslim. And the interpretation of Harlem through the Studio Museum postcard project is vast, but there are no interior images of mosques. So I was like, okay, well, if you're going to ask me to do this, then I'll just go to the Malcolm X Shabazz mosque and photograph people praying inside. And so I was kind of thinking through what does it mean to, to take advantage of someone deep in prayer, even if they have the, if, if they give you consent, 
what does it mean for me to illustrate what's happening inside these spaces for an art public or potentially an what, what's the opposite word for empathy? Help me out here. Judge, judgmentalness. Yeah. Or something. So there's a lot of judgmental viewers when, when they're looking at art, right? So I wanted to kind of protect that. So I ended up illustrating the carpet for the postcard project. Lo and behold, you have the columns with the religious carpeting on the columns. <laughs> so as talking about columns itself and why I made them, I was presenting some of these ideas to the gallery. And then we decided, oh, look, Let's put all these things together and make your own Corinthian column in the space. And so I was looking at Roman architecture and had the privilege of spending a couple of months in the summer before the show in Italy. And I was photographing some ruins in Rome and some abandoned uh, mansion spaces in South Italy and kind of doing my thing eating a lot of good pasta. And I, <laughs> I started to make other connections that were outside of the co column necessarily itself, but references to radical ornamentation. Because one of the things that interested me about the Corinthian column also is the decoration. Because this is another flex. This is another way of saying we are the authority. And so I was looking at ornamentation in Italy and starting to understand that there are these connections of fashion to places that I am purportedly from, like Bangalore, India. And I use purportedly on purpose. I was, I was understanding that there were actual Italian military in Bangalore for a very long time. I believe during the first world war. And so I started, and from this point, I was just an artist. Like I'm not a scholar. And so I don't have any necessary proof, but I was like, oh, that's why Italians are so South Asian. Like everything about them, the way they look, the way they dress, the, the like right down to the dowry, it's very similar cultures. And so I started thinking about co-opting or taking back these kinds of ornamentation that I was seeing in Louis Vuitton or Prada or like, you know, I spent some time in Milan as well. And I was looking at like couture houses and things, taking all that information. I was then making my own designs for rugs to wrap around these columns. And I was having these rug makers in Kashmir that I've worked with on my psychedelic prayer rugs, create these custom made rugs for the columns. So I started asking myself, like, how do I let my viewer know that the graphics on the rug itself was a political act? Because normally when you see rugs, you're just in awe of the beauty and you are blessed by how pretty it is and you kind of walk away. So I was using another moment in time when I was able to travel back in 2005. I received some time in Germany, in Berlin, and I was at the Humboldt University was having like a book fair and I picked up these mosaic cartoon magazines and I picked up all the ones from 1980 because I was like, hey, you know what? I want to learn about this kind of socialist underground cartooning politic through this magazine because that seems to me unmediated and I feel like I'll never learn about what I was born into unless I look at these artistic movements to kind of try to find something more authentic and genuine. And so I went back to those magazines because I'd never even touched them. And I had a friend of mine that I very much trust translate them 
from German to English and just started piecing away aspects of the radical ornamentation of these cartooning magazines and these graphics with the ornamentation of these Kashmir rugs. And that's kind of how things started manifesting and one led to the next. And I decided to dissect the columns and create this room filled with collages and columns. Across America's art history, image related to empire, such as the way 19th century American painters, such as Jasper Cropsey, addressed Greek and Roman temples, has been a warning to American culture and polity to cohere, to persist, and to continue. And so I appreciate that your work is soaked partially, substantially, in an address of the geography and history you just referenced. But are you also interested in addressing the American artistic address of empire? You know, my work is so layered. It's hard for me to even explain all the weird ideas that are in it. So I wasn't able to actually bring it back to the United States. <laughs> I am American. At least I would like to think I am. And I know I know really no I other place. Been for just a second. You're even Texan. <laughs> you're, so you're, yes, you're extra. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you that I have been in a book club with Michelle Obama. I can tell you that I used to work for a land attorney who used to date George Bush Jr. Yeah, I'm very, very Texan. <laughs> so that being said, I was looking at the socialist propaganda, you know, because the, the Mosaic magazine was a graphic illustration of how capitalism is bad, you know, for children in the GDR. So I was looking at those magazines. I was looking at, you know, the patterning and the language of Kashmir and its local environment. And as you probably know, there was a sanction and a lockdown in Kashmir. And I don't know if you know about all the violence that's happening with people who are just trying to find sovereignty in that part of the world. But then I'm kind of triangulating what's happening with Trump. And I'm looking at how Trump is inviting Modi, the president of India, one of the largest, in quotations, democracies in the world, these democracies are coming together to band together, to not band together for freedom and opportunity. They're banding together to restrict people and citizens even further from their sense of sovereignty. And what does that do to me as an ambiguous South Asian person in America who's from Texas? Modi goes to Houston and as we all know, there's lots of documentation of how Trump will put ads out like on Craigslist, Craigslist types, you know, documents to have black and brown people come and they'd pay. Right. So this is well documented that that the Trump administration has done this over time. So the same thing happens in Houston. It was a there was a what do you call it? A saying, howdy modi. This is what people were saying when, when Modi was coming to Houston. This was in 2019, 2020? I, I'm not sure. No, it had to have been 19 because this is well before the pandemic. So, yes, I'm very much trying to unpack my positionality in the United States, in the Americas. And I'm basically having to start from scratch because I'm not seen in the United States at all. The history of my body 
is not seen at all. It's not seen in TV shows. It's not seen as TV writing, movies, cinema, music, art, barely in the politics. The fact that Kamala Harris is a black woman who's also South Asian is a coup. (laughs) So yes, I'm very much having to build up a legacy of art making that insists and persists that I very much exist in this country as a Muslim American. And I'm trying to pull together a history from my knowledge of studying at Cornell, working with really intellectual global aesthetics professors, historians, Africana studies professors to kind of help me have some kind of historical referencing to understand my body as well. And I'm understanding weight. Like there was a native population of black and brown people in this country already. There are references to Islam in this country before Columbus. And Columbus was trying to find me, essentially. We're trying to find South Asia. And they accidentally called the groups of natives who are black and brown Indians. They took the nativity away from the black body and clumped them into slavery. There's all, all of these are the actual things that were happening in this country to manufacture what we see as the United States. And so how could I even step into a world and, and, and ask to claim when all of these other things were happening, right? So I'm in a situation now where I've finally, from my stubbornness, I'm, I'm in, still in the art world and people are giving me voice because I think these things happen in steps, right? We had to have basic sovereignty for African-Americans, Black Americans, women, You know, like we had to fight through so much and we're obviously still fighting that before I could even really stake a claim in this country, essentially. So, yeah, I mean, everything I do is about understanding my positionality in the United States and kind of trying to make these global connections, because I think a lot of artists in New York and, you know, that are doing very well in the United States forget that we are the reason why there's global everything, like anything we do has a huge impact on the globe. So yeah, I'm kind of just a little by little trying to create a lexicon of language to get to a place where I can sit down and talk with scholars who can help me suss out some of my visual ideas and influence me and show me in directions where I could read and be exposed to more and more and just like learn more about my positionality. The snakeskin works are, you know, quite literally a deconstruction and forced degeneration of the symbols of whiteness. So, yeah, I mean, they very much work that way. Speaking speaking of those columns and, and how you construct them, they are made out of an Owens Corning foam insulation product called Pink Panther Foamular. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but I think I'm close. No, it is. It is. It's very true. So that's a very specific material. Why was it attractive to you? Let me start with the fact that I'm a TV girl <laughs> and I would sit up at night and watch Channel 13, which is the, you know, child safe television channel. But then at late at night, it would show British TV. And so I got to know who Peter, what is his name? Peter, Peter, Peter Sellers. (laughs) 
So I, I started to learn about Peter Sellers and how he was the, I always thought he was Arab, you know, like in my, in my mind, I was always like, this guy's Algerian, but um, he was apparently French or some kind of ambiguous French man who was Pink Panther. And he was essentially a dunce. Okay. So he was just a hilarious, goofy tramp, essentially, who ended up accidentally solving mysteries because, you know, I guess the lesson at the end of these movies were the truth will come out. And so when I was looking at the materials, I was very much adamant about exposing the the industrial stamping that says Panther because it, it just, again, like I I'm willing to step out of my comfort zone to continue to learn about alternative histories that are based or steeped more in fact, but aren't necessarily readily available to the masses. But I'm also very much dedicated to the lighter side of things, which is like these wonderful moments I spent with my family just growing up in this weird place in Denton, Texas, like the pop cultural aspects of things. So the reason I use foam is because I'm about 5'5". I'm pretty strong. I deadlift as a practice because there's a there's a side of my practice that is performance and I do endurance practice work. But I really need to feel agency when I'm making a large sculpture. So I wanted to make a column that looked really heavy, but if I needed to move it, I needed to be able to move it on my own. So I decided to make instead of an object that is about two or 300 pounds each, I wanted to make an object that was about 50 pounds max. So there's very little like hard material involved. You know, we have like a wood boning structure, but we mostly used cutouts of foam. Now, the other funny thing about architectural foam is going back to these meditations on Roman or Italian sculpture and art history, thinking about porticos and these kind of Tuscan style ornamental shapes that end up on roofing and then you got the pillars. So when George Bush was governor, George Bush Jr. was governor of Texas, he decided it would be a great idea to put in more highways. And, you know, it's like if you're a politician and you want to be loved, you put in highways. I mean, that's like a no brainer. You like have some sort of transportation, a redevelopment or development. And so he puts in the George Bush turnpike. And we're still reeling from the traffic that that has caused along I-35. So along with the highways, of course, you need to have businesses. And so we have all of these city center, uh, what do you call it, mini malls that would come up. And so they would come up within a day. Like you would drive by on your way to Dallas one day and on the way back, all of a sudden you have the Hobby Lobby, you have the like Chili's, you have uh, what else? You have like the, you know, the the 99 cent store and the Ace Hardware store. Like that little area is blocked off and it's done. All of the design and contracting looked like Italian architecture, uh, the porticos, and to make it look fancy. And so one day my dad was like, I need to come go pick up something from the hardware store. So we drive in off the highway and I actually pluck a part of the pillar off into my hand 
<laughs> and, and I and I'm holding a piece of this column in my hand and and my dad's freaking out because he's like oh my god I'm undocumented what are you doing to me oh my god I'm gonna go to jail what's gonna happen to me and he just like sticks it back on with gum he takes the gum out of his mouth and sticks it back on like MacGyver and we run away and so you know it's like I wasn't necessarily thinking about that moment when I was getting the materials, but it took all of that kind of unconscious doing to get back to that memory of me being in a car driving with my dad. So in addition to the snakeskin works we've we've been discussing, the Wexner is also showing a group of related collages, which you've been making for a couple of years now. Is the way collage is constructed and the way indeed you've constructed it, which uh, in, in, in these wall-mounted pieces are, are, are two-dimensional and behind plexi, are you using collage as a metaphor for the flattening of lands and people into empire in a, in, in a, in a construct you're deconstructing in snakeskin? Or am I working too hard here? Well, I think I was working too hard because I was right there with you. When I was when I was <laughs> when I was having to do the early artist work, the labor of trying to define myself. Oh, okay, today's lesson is write an artist statement, or oh, I have to apply to this. I need to write my mission statement, artist statement. I was talking about collapsed lands and cultures and time, and and so there was always an element of collage in all the work I was doing. And I, I, I'm actually a very good painter. And going back to earlier in our conversation, I graduated at the University of North Texas with a painting degree. I also studied sociology because I think even at that time, though I wasn't really understanding my surroundings because of 9-11, it kind of thwarted me into a, a system where I was like, I really don't want to grow up feeling angry all the time. So I want to understand why this happened. So I think halfway through my education, I kind of switched things around and ended up with a painting and sociology degree. So when I was painting and I have, I, I was starting to build kind of a career for myself painting. I ended up at a gallery, I mean, miraculously, right when I got to New York in 2007, I was introduced to a gallery, a painting gallery from San Francisco called Hosfeld. And a couple of people that I knew were showing there at the time. And Todd Hosfeld had a space over by Exit Art in New York City, which wasn't like seen as the place to have an art gallery. But, you know, it was it was a huge space and people would come and enjoy the works that were up. It was a beautiful space. And so I, I ended up having a few shows with him and creating a painting career for myself. And how this answers your question <laughs> is that I was trying to figure out all these different um, legacies of painting. And I think every time I was starting to understand where I sat in painting, someone would be like, well, look at Sharin Nishat, look at Shazi Sukhandar. And I was always so confused because these really awesome women are Muslim, but they don't come from the United States. They didn't have education in the United States. They already had a career once they hit the market in the United States. And though these are, these are where they live now and they are American, 
you couldn't really compare the two because you were comparing Shirin, who is uh, an Iranian, and you're comparing the other person with Shazi Sikandar, who is Pakistani. And so I was kind of just very frustrated with, with the way in which my education was going. And so I kind of met this painter and started studying with him. His name was Vernon Fisher. And he wouldn't even show me painting. He was like, look at conceptual artists, look at John Baldessari, look at the Black Mountain College, look at cinema, go home. Your assignment is watching every Igmar Bergman movie in the, in the collection that you can get your hands on. So that was, that suited me better because I feel like I'm very attracted to the ability of moving images to graft multiple uh, nuances into one frame. And I think that that's why I make collages, because though my paintings became more like the brown girl Muslim version of David Sally, so I was, I mean, one could argue that David Sally is a collage artist. I mean, these are the, these were the painters You're certainly that, mining the tradition. There's no question about that. Yeah. And so I, okay. So, you know, if I want to sound fancy, I could say I was mining the, tra the tradition of these very popular painters at the time in the late nineties, early two thousands via my professor. He was teaching me Richard Prince, Sigmar Polka, Gerhard Richter, David Sally, the guy who wrote air guitar, you know, these were kinds of like the artists that were being influenced by me because they were his colleagues. And he, you know, was oftentimes able to bring some of those people to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so I was being influenced by this work. And so though I loved what I was seeing, I always felt othered. And so I kind of started making collages and then I would paint them. <laughs> And I would put away the collages as though th that wasn't art. And so now I'm in, a, I'm in a place where I can do whatever I want. I literally could just be like, actually, I want to do a full dance ensemble. And somewhere, someone in the world will be like, Basira's never missed a beat. Let's just have her do it. <laughs> if she can come up with the money for it, great. <laughs> and so I think with that, very hard-earned privilege to kind of swerve all over the highway. I was able to come back to collage making and kind of do it in the way in which collage is traditionally seen, where it's like substrate on top of substrate on top of substrate. And my use of colored plexiglass is, I don't know, it, there, there's a reflectivity to it that I feel if you don't experience it in person, you're really never going to experience it. And, and I kind of like the trick trickery in that but the the different the ways in which these pieces of of acrylic sit on top of each other is like painting and so you know there's like I, I don't quite understand what I'm doing quite yet but you know it's like a the idea the conceptual idea of living in a collage I mean my my identity itself is a collage so it really it really just suits me and I'm kind of I don't question it I just kind of go with the energy Finally, you are at the Wexner, as it were, on a film and video studio residency, and you are creating a TV pilot. What is the TV pilot about, and is there a relationship between it and the ideas we've been discussing? So the TV pilot is called By Faith, 
By faith is a plate that sits above the front door to my Crown Heights apartment. And I've been in this apartment now for 10 years. So the, the premise is me kind of isolating myself in an apartment because I think I'm trying to achieve a sense of purity to make my work. And I'm sussing out why I have to isolate myself to make my work. And so I start to question like, oh, do I have intimacy issues? Wait, why don't I have a lover? You know, like, so I'm starting asking myself these questions. And then I realized that the way I was raised in Islam, you kind of have to purify yourself often multiple times a day and spend time with yourself meditating. And so I think like I took that to the thousandth degree when I was making my artwork because I kind of substituted my relationship to art making and being a person in the art world to religion. So I'm kind of swapping one thing out and putting in another thing, right? I mean, and I'm not the only one who's done this. It, what didn't Alfred Barr, like he was like, ooh, should I be the director of MoMA or should I be, uh, you know, in the parish? So, you know, this is like, I'm just one of a million different artists that are swapping religion with art. And so here I am trying to do this holy work. And then at the same time, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to work on my intimacy issues. I'm going to start dating. I'm going to get the house all cute. Everything's going to be fine. And then all of a sudden there's a pandemic and no one's doing anything. And so this is my intention of making this TV show, but then it's happening in real time. So this is kind of giving you a window inside of the way I work. It's like, I'll have these premonitions and these ideas to make something and then it happens in the real world. And so it always seems like I'm some sort of a weird medium who's like predicting what's going to happen. For example, snakeskin is like the fall of the empire. And here we are, the fall of the empire. I mean, it, January, January 6th will be sussed out for a very long time. So, you know, I was given the opportunity to take these weird ideas into a, a residency, a performance residency program for six weeks at the at the kitchen in New York City. And I was given like a huge warehouse space that was kind of gifted by Jim Hodges. And I assembled a really fantastic cinematography, lighting, sound and director crew to put together several scripted scenes in hopes to make about, you know, I say 10 episodic television show, like 10, 10 part series, but we don't really know where it will land yet. So what happens is I'm again, using this identity of collage. So part of what's happening is you see me with my friends in the flesh. So I've brought many people that I've gotten to know and love over the, over the course of 10 years plus. So I'm sitting and I'm painting with Amy Silman. I'm cooking dinner with Leah Gagetano and T. DeLong. I'm looking at books with Rico Gatson. You know, there's like all these really amazing thinkers and painters that I've over time gotten to know, and they've really given me something in efforts for me to kind of understand my intimacy issues. And so all of a sudden, you'll see me talking to myself because the premise of the TV show is that I'm in my apartment quarantining and all of these people who I'm having these really wonderful moments with are actually just in my head. And that at some point, 
the viewer, the audience will understand that, oh, she's never left her house. And all of this stuff was just a figment of her imagination. To, to end this kind of clunky explanation is that I was thinking about the seven volumes of Marcel Proust and how we know that in real time when he was writing those books, he was in bed and he was sick. And so I love thinking about how like if a, if a man can write one of the most important literature, pieces of literature still to this day in the world from his bed while he had a fever, then I can make a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> and in, in, in your bed while on a residency in Columbus, Ohio. Thank you, pandemic. Yeah, because I was, I was very sick from March to early May because I, I ended up getting COVID. So a lot of the ideas and scripting happened in bed while I had a fever. <laughs> Basira Khan, thanks much. Thank you. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. American artist Lighty Churchman's imagery is wide-ranging, echoing the sheer abundance of visual information that bombards us daily. The paintings treat equally the subjects of animals, landscapes, themes from Tibetan Buddhism, real estate advertising, real estate advertisements, and remakes of works by other artists, from Henri Rousseau to Barbara Kruger. Focus, Lighty Churchman, on view at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, January 22nd through March 21st. Welcome back. Next up, Future Farmers, which was founded in 1995 by my guest, Amy Franceschini. Future Farmers is an ever-changing design studio and collective that supports art projects and research interests. The group has focused on using projects to propose alternatives to present social, political, and environmental constructs. Future Farmers' project Seed Journey is included in Climate Changing. Initiated in 2016, Seed Journey is a collaboration between Future Farmers and local farmers and scholars to return heirloom grain seeds to their native lands. It began back in 2016 with a voyage from Oslo, Norway to Belgium, and has expanded in subsequent years to include other seeds, nations, even continents. Amy Franceschini, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. As I mentioned in the introduction, Future Farmers is a collective without a constant stable of members. The exhibition at the Wexner, in which you're participating, is a look at how artists and art institutions may engage with necessary systemic change. 
and I think that when we talk about art and its impacts, one person, one artist absolutely can change a nation in the world and the world. And I wrote a book about that once, but more often sustainable change comes through collective action. What makes the future farmers model especially well-suited to the questions that an exhibition such as this addresses? It's a complicated question. I think it's really important first to establish that future farmers doesn't work alone and that we could not change things if it wasn't for working with directly with farmers, with people who are doing direct action in terms of activism, working with politicians. So it's in terms of the idea of collectivity, it's a it's a lot beyond future farmers. I would say we're very lucky that we have the opportunity to partner with institutions like the Wexner that can serve as amplifiers of all of these different actors' work and to bring together efforts in a central location for an amount of time and, and within the model of an exhibition where people have access to the ideas we're dealing with in a different way through art. What about bringing Sea Journey to the American Midwest, to Ohio, interested you? And how did you choose or think through how you would present the project at the Wexner? So what became really interesting about Sea Journey is that it started as the seafaring project, which was very important because it originated in Oslo, in this harbor, and the project was connected to this public art project we had been doing for eight years, which was the development of an urban farm in the waterfront of Oslo. And then we were growing these ancient grains and that farm, and we wanted to take them on this reverse migration to the Middle East on a very special boat. It's an 1895 wooden rescue sailboat. But as we traveled and met different farmers along the way, often our seeds that we would exchange with farmers would travel on land and, and invite us to different situations on land and then further in different locations. And so it became clear that Sea Journey wasn't just about a seafaring modality it was important that it could take place everywhere. And seeds move in many ways through hands, through birds, through air. So it was also a way to keep the project alive. And in terms of bringing it to the Midwest, <laughs> you could say our ship ran aground in, at the Wexner. It's always important for us to find a local context that resonates with the project. So we were able to, first of all, we wanted to connect. Radio was a very important tool on our on our trip. It was also one of the curiosities of one of the crew members, Marta Van Dessel. So on the crew, we invited people to research some aspect of the commons because our lens of this project was the seed as our, our interest in the seed was really thinking about how do we keep seeds in the hands of many and not in the hands of the few, namely corporations who have control over most of our seed stock in the world. And so my lens was the seeds and other crew members were other notions of the common. So Marta was looking at radio. Another person, Martin Lundberg, was looking at international waters. And then Michael Tossig was looking at land use. And so we got to the Wexner. We first started, our starting point was actually looking at college radio and the Wexner or the university surrounding Wexner had one of the first student run radio stations. And that was something interesting to us on the trip. We would always meet amateur radio clubs as kind of just a way to get situated in a site. And then we would ask them to broadcast the seed stories that we collected from farmers. One thing we try to do is find a seed story in each location. And so I was just looking around online really. And I found this winter wheat that was growing about two hours outside of Cincinnati by a farmer named Ed Hill, who was an immigrant from Europe. And he was a, came as a Mennonite family 
And there's always stories about Mennonites carrying seeds in their pockets from their homeland. And so his grandfather brought seeds in his pocket. And before they came to the United States, they stopped in Holland for a couple of months. And some of the seeds were planted there in Holland. And then they came to the Midwest and planted these seeds for several years until, in a sense, the market demanded an industrialized wheat. So this what they called Turkish red wheat went out of production. Ed had it in his mind at one point to bring it back into production. He had some of this grain. So he and a few other farmers got together and brought this grain back into production, which has become super popular with kind of boutique bakers and especially people who are gluten intolerant. And there was a beautiful story where he got back in touch with the people in Holland where they had stayed and they didn't have the grain anymore, but they were, they had a bakery in their community. So he sent some of those grains back to Holland and they started growing the seeds for one season and have also gotten them back in production. And so for us, that was really important to have this seed in our exhibition at the Wexner. And so in the exhibition, you'll see each seed that we collect is in a jar and there's an accompanying seed story and a drawing that sort of illustrates that story. So there's one now with Ed Hill's story of the Turkish red being brought by the Mennonites in their pockets. You mentioned the industrial standardization of wheat in America. On the show page at manpodcast.com, we'll include a link to a an episode of Gastropod, the great podcast on on food and science from last year. The episode is from, from last year, and it talks about the relationship between the industrial standardization you reference and the construction of whiteness in American polity and culture. So anybody who engages your project or projects, really, is going to consider seeds and you point us to their origins. And just to give listeners some background for your focus on the human carriage and extension of seeds, according to the University of Michigan's Center for Sustainable Systems, In 2020, so just 20 years ago, 25% of corn, 61% of cotton, and 54% of the soybeans planted in the United States were genetically engineered, i.e. corporatized. Last year, these percentages were expected to increase to 92, 96, and 94%, respectively. Seed Journey engages with seeds that are, you know, I I guess in the vernacular that we know from our farmer's markets that we would call heirloom seeds. Does the project at any point in its, what now, almost four-year run address corporatization as directly as, say, those statistics do? I think what is implicit in the project is a questioning of who holds the control of the, the seeds. And I think often Future Farmers tries not to, like overtly, tries to think of a way that we deal with these questions using poetics or coming at it from a different way so that there's not a binary imposed. So there's not like, this is good and this is bad. And what we really focused on in the seed journey was the fact that there are tons of seed stock that exists in gene banks that have not been industrialized. They were saved before uh, even chemical fertilizers were used. But there's a problem that there's not enough human power to get those out of the gene banks and into the fields and adapting to the changing climate, the changing desires of the market, etc. And so what we ran into on our trip was that geneticists were super excited 
to have these farmers and most of the farmers we met were small scale farmers who are growing, you know, these in Europe, they're called ancient grains or farmers grains. They were growing them out of a, a passion and a passion to make good bread. Like it was kind of simple as that. But then they got interested in the fact that they could get these seeds out of gene banks, start to get them back into production, send back a bit of these seed stocks back to the gene bank so that they were updated and then get them back into production. And I think the most striking thing to me that was common among all the farmers we met from Norway all the way to Spain and then to Turkey was that they all were convinced if we do shift to a, a smaller scale farming model or if there is an event where we can't depend on, which I, don't, I wouldn't say we, we depend on industrial grains. I don't know that they're dependable, but if there is a shift to a, a type of farming that's counter to the dominant one, we don't have enough seed stock at the moment to do that. We need So they need we need to animate that seed stock. So all of them were very, really busy and, and highly organized and networked in the the stock that they were developing and they were often communicating with each other. So sometimes we would, you know, land in Wales with a group of farmers and they would tell us where to go on our next stop. You know, we, we, we had a plan of our trip, but the, the captains of our trip really agreed that we should keep our trip open because they had sailed around the world many times. And they said, it's way more fun if you don't have everything worked out, which was hard for museums when they wanted to have opening dates. But what became beautiful was that <laughs> that um, each group of farmers either had a batch of seeds they wanted us to take to the next port or stories or, you know, they, they had people they wanted us to meet. And for them, our project galvanized their work. And as I said earlier, the museum is a really important collaborator because we could use their PR streams. We could use, you know, the them as a stage to amplify the work and the voices of the farmers who honestly don't have time to promote what they're doing except among their network. So I think implicit in the work they were doing is a questioning of uh, the stability of, of industrialized grain, which has, I think, numerous times shown that it's not sustainable. It might do something that they wish it to do for maybe 10 years and then it collapses. So if you look at these old grains, they weren't bred you know, all the industrialized grains are bred for very specific traits. Like we wanted to have more starch. We wanted to stand up straight. You know, they have certain traits they're looking for. And so they've been selected, selected, and all the nuances have been selected out. You mentioned this whiteness. I, I wouldn't use that term, but the older grains haven't had those traits selected out. So they're much more resilient and they sort of have this kind of these metabolic switches that go off it's like a memory, like, oh, it rained 100 years ago. We know how to deal with this. Oh, it's freezing. We can harvest the nutrients in a different way from the soil. And the industrialized ones have kind of been, let's say, their memory has been stolen. I'm an art history nerd. So there are a couple of elements of this project and your broader project that kind of jump out to me in fun ways. The first phase of the project that is at the Wexner might be considered a project you did called Bruegel Awakens. Why Bruegel and how did you engage Bruegel? So, like I said before, often when we were at one port or one location, farmers would tell us where to go next. And so I guess word got out that we were coming to Belgium, but we, did, we were just coming to Belgium out of practicality because we had port to stay in over the winter 
But word got out that the sea journey was coming, and we got this beautiful email from a group of farmers in Poyotland, Poyotland, which is a region where Bruegel painted most of his paintings of the Flemish countryside. So we received this message that said, you know, we're organizing this annual event to celebrate the kind of farming going on in Poyotland and the renovation of water mills. And we heard you were coming. And we also found this grain in an archaeological dig that we think was grown during the times of Bruegel. And we'd like you to take it on your seed journey. And they even proposed, maybe it's your first artist in residence. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's just beautiful because, you know, there's all this talk right now of intermingling species and kind of multi-species perspective. And it was just wonderful that they kind of proposed it without using those terms. So we were invited and often we were in a specific location. We try to find as many farmers as possible working with these older grains. So we researched different people in the region and invited them into this water mill. A farmer offered his water mill as a site to do a seed exchange. And so we call that a seed ceremony. And every time we do these seed ceremonies, we're interviewing the farmers about their seeds and their conversations amongst each other and broadcasting them online. And we formalize this kind of awakening of Bruegel in, a, in this seed ceremony inside of this mill with a musician. And we asked him to summon Bruegel through sound. So <laughs> we had this beautiful musical event inside of the mill. And then we walked the grain to the river and put the grains on this little canoe that we had that had an oven on it and we rode the canoe through the rivers and through the canals to Antwerp where the mothership our seed journey boat was to go further on and that project evolved into a two-year-long project which is now a grain field here in the in Poyotelan I'm sitting in Belgium right now and it's kind of what happened in seed journey is like one thing would lead to another to another and that's why it's not just a two-year project anymore. So you were thinking more of Bruegel and his era rather than Bruegel and his wheat fields. I mean, it made total sense because of that. The one painting of the the harvest, the harvesters, was epic, and also the watermelon depicted in some of his paintings. It was depicted backwards, <laughs> which was interesting. It made sense, and I think it, it was also at the time we were invited. There was a celebration of Bruegel of five hundred years. So that was like his work was very present in the collective imaginary around the region. And it's the area where he painted is quite peri-urban. It's very close to Brussels. So it's really changing in terms of turning into a suburbia and farmland is kind of endangered right now. So there's a there's an interesting conversation going on among kind of the aging farmers and the young farmers and how to preserve some of this farmland. Another relationship that jumps out to me is your traversing the sea and waterways as part of the project. And for many centuries now, from Homer to Frederick Church to Herman Melville to Bassian Otter, he says gloomily, artists and poets and novelists have used the sea as a metaphor for uncertainty and danger. Was that a metaphorical construction, a a historical construction that you consciously tapped into as you planned Seed Journey? I I think it was more of a, you know, it was like a romantic idea in the beginning. And I think the more that the project developed, you can't, there's no way you can get around the fact that it is a totally precarious mode of 
moving and and that there's a wonderful energy to that where you can plan and plan and plan and plan and plan and plan and the weather can change at a moment's notice we were in the middle of shipping lanes which are quite dramatic in the north sea and we're a small little sailing vessel it's like a wild area to navigate we didn't realize there would be smog in the middle of the north sea but where the shipping lane is it like coughing there's so much smog it's like a brown cloud of smoke and the more we are at sea the more we stepping into this literature and culture around this the sailing and actually when we got to the opening of the thames one of our crew members said well, when you get to the thames you should go at sunset and you should read joseph conrad uh, heart of darkness this chapter where he describes the thames and, and and the history of things moving through the thames and the light and so we read this part of the heart of darkness and um you know, became more tuned in to these histories around it. I think another aspect of the of sailing together as a crew is that relates to future farmers is kind of the intimacy in the way we work. We often, if like in Oslo, we move to a location together, we leave our everyday lives and we work in situ very, very intensely. And we become kind of a collective body. And in the ship, that just happens automatically. You're so kind of focused on the practicalities of just getting from point A to B and through storms and navigating. You're doing these rotations of four hours of sleep, four hours of being on watch, that there's this rhythm that brings you in together as like one body. And I think it, it was interesting because the, the captain, when he first we first asked if they would do this job, we started to describe who we were. And he said, well, you sound like anarchists. Will you be able to deal with the hierarchy of the ship? Because, you know, when the captain's says something, you have to respond. And I said, I think we'll be okay, you know. But it was interesting just to see how when we were on the ship, everything was smooth. And then we got to land, everything started to break down because we had to make decisions like, where do we eat? What do we eat? Like time became so disturbing. It was like a totally different way of thinking when we got to land. And it was really hard to get, come back to kind of everyday life after this year and a half on-off journey at sea. One of the things that got me thinking about the relationship between the sea as a site of danger and uncertainty was the Morse code mural that is a part of the work and that is installed at the Wexner. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com, translated into English, if you will. It says, we do not need museums to preserve varieties. What we want is to grow them. What and where is the Flatbread Society Bakehouse? And is there a relationship between it and sea journey? And as a slight corollary, how did it happen to be so damn beautiful? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. So Flatbread Society is a permanent public art project that we developed between 2010 and 2018. And it was a very organic process that led to the permanent occupation of a space within the development that's now an urban farm. And one of the highlights of the farm is this collection, growing collection of ancient grains that we're trying to bring back in production in the public sphere so that people can have access to some of the ideas I expressed earlier. The bakehouse came from visiting rural areas around Oslo and seeing bakehouses. So a bakehouse was often a place in a village where you could bring your flour and bake your bread because it took a lot of wood to fire an oven individually. 
So if you could do it together in one, you know, three days of baking, the whole village could make their bread. And they, in Norway, they would make a flat bread. And it was a bread that could store for up to three years. And they would store it in their roofs. And they actually called the bread a storage economy, which I thought was really beautiful. And they also said in these rural places that the bakehouse was kind of like the place where gossip was passed. You knew everything about everyone through the bakehouse. And we thought that would kind of be a beautiful idea to bring that to the city. And Oslo is a very special city because it's a new city in a way, and it's really becoming. And it's becoming very fast. It wants to be on the world stage of culture, of economy. And so we were proposing to do something a bit slower. And so we proposed this bakehouse, and we proposed to make it in the form of this rescue boat, the same boat that we took on the sea journey, because the rescue boat was still there's still a fleet of them in the harbor and their job is to rescue boats during storms. And the Latin word of the, of the Latin root of the word rescue is to return. And so we started, you know, as we were thinking, wow, it would be great to take these seeds back or kind of unravel their histories by taking them back to the Middle East. We thought it would be beautiful to make the bakehouse in the form of this rescue boat and thinking about the return of these seeds and this root of the word rescue made a lot of sense. So we worked with boat builders and made this beautiful space. I agree, it's a beautiful space. One side is a propagation house and the other side is a bakehouse holding three ovens that allow for three different types of bakings of bread, flatbread, raised bread, and tandoor bread. And they're all connected and they heat a bench so you can sit on a bench while the bread is baking and be warm. And it connects to Sea Journey because kind of the exit of this eight-year-long public art project was to depart by ship taking all the seeds we'd grown at the site on this reverse migration. And you mentioned this Morse code message. That message was actually a statement by the farmer we collaborated with in Oslo named Johan Sward, who's very busy with these getting these seeds back into production. It really resonated with us as well in terms of being artists who, whenever we're invited to do a project in a museum, we push out of the museum trying to make the work in the world and work with the museum as a collaborator. But the space of an exhibition is quite limiting. And I would say it's it's a limited audience that is seeing the work. It's kind of a great balance to doing the work out in the world where it's messy and the unknown happens and then you can kind of distill the work for presentation in a museum. I think it's a great balance. But we, we felt that Johan was kind of saying the same thing. Like we the museums have a very important place for conservation, but we also need to be in the world and letting things happen organically and adapt and adapt to those as they happen. And finally, as I as I mentioned Melville and sort of Moby Dick a moment ago, mm-hmm. <laughs> what is the project you're working on now? <laughs> One project we're working on is called In the Belly of the City, a Whale, and that's here in Belgium. And Belgium's such a wonderful country because they support their artists, and there have been a lot of subsidies during Corona to do project to support artists in in new ways. So we proposed to, and actually, there's been funds to do kind of to rethink public art in time of Corona, where you can't meet. So we proposed to make this structure on a barge that gestures towards a whale and move from Brussels to Antwerp to Ghent with a rotating group of musicians that play inside of this this moving stage. And what's beautiful 
about these canals is that they often go very close to apartment blocks where people are probably in their apartments during Corona, don't have a space really to go. And so we were thinking it would be beautiful to have this image and this sound moving past all of these people during the time of Corona. And it's kind of interesting because in the 1600s, a whale actually made its way up to, in the Skelda to Antwerp. It was killed, but they had an annual parade in Antwerp, and the parade always portrayed kind of the politics of the year. And in, I think it was 1657, in one of the processions, they had this float of a whale uh, moving through the city, and that was sort of an inspiring connecting point. Amy Franceschini, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.